Welcome back to another episode of A Desi Woman Podcast. I am your host, Sonia Gokwai, and the voices I am seeking may have never been heard before, but their stories deserve to be told. What is a Desi Woman? She is a dynamic, fearless, and strong woman. She is your mother, your grandmother, your daughter, your sister. She is every one of us who is on an endless pursuit of self-empowerment and fulfillment. I am Sonia Gokhlai, and I am a Desi woman. Hello, and welcome to another edition of A Desi Woman Podcast. I am your host, Sonia Gokhlai. Today, we are delighted to be joined once again by Ashwani Jain. Ashwani Jain recently ran a groundbreaking and historic campaign as the youngest candidate to ever vie for the role of governor of Maryland. Ashwani is a first-generation American who was born to parents who immigrated to the U.S. from India and then went on to become successful small business owners in the state of Maryland. A product of the Maryland Public Schools and graduate of the University of Maryland, Ashwani began volunteering for Barack Obama's presidential campaign as a high school senior. After Obama took office, Ashwani transitioned from a campaign staffer to an administration official, helping the presidential personnel diversify applications for political appointees to the federal government and acting as a director of outreach for then-Vice President Joe Biden's Cancer Moonshot Initiative. Ashwani, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me back. Well, we are so excited to be catching up with you on some of the hot topics that are occurring in politics, which is literally minute by minute, hour by hour, it feels like in this country. (laughs) But I want to congratulate you and all Marylanders on some exciting legislation that was passed. And wherein I know you've done a ton of advocacy work. Maryland Governor Westmore this month signed bills into law that enshrine abortion rights and protect gender-affirming care. And to quote him directly, quote, in our state, no one should ever have to justify their humanity, end quote. Now, the governor's approval comes as some Democratic-led states have enacted similar protections, while several state legislators with the GOP majority have moved in the opposite direction to pass near total bans on abortion and gender affirming care for minors. I'm in such a state in Ohio. Very oppressive. Now, while other states are seemingly curtailing and obliterating reproductive rights and moving aggressively to deny the existence of trans and non-binary individuals, it does seem that Maryland is doing quite the opposite. And even Lieutenant Governor Aruna Miller said, we're making Maryland a state that is welcoming, inclusive, and that safeguards the rights of all people. Along with enshrining abortion as a fundamental right, the new measures mandate public colleges and universities and ask them to develop and implement a reproductive health services plan, which includes ensuring that students have access to over-the-counter contraceptives. Under one measure, judges are prohibited from requiring individuals to provide testimony or evidence in other states' cases that allege a violation of criminal law for receiving or assisting with health care that is protected in Maryland. Now, with these legislative acts, I think it's clear the governor is sending a clear message about the state's stance on reproductive care following the Supreme Court's reversal of Roe v. Wade last year, which removed federal abortion protection. 
And so I really have many more questions for you around this, but would love to hear your response to this. Yeah, I mean, you said it right. You know, these are fundamental human rights and we need to ensure that we have full reproductive justice. So I'm, I'm super, super proud to, to be in a state like Maryland, to call Maryland my home. I'm proud of the governor, the lieutenant governor, you know, all the elected officials that voted in support of this, all of the advocates, and even, you know, my team of volunteers that have been pushing this throughout the state for the last two years, uh, even before it was brought up in our Maryland legislature. Because I think that really, you know, you need grassroots support from residents, from activists, from organizations to get elected officials to actually move the needle further. So, yeah, I mean, this is a great, great news. We have a lot more work to do outside of Maryland to make sure that every resident, regardless of their zip code, regardless of their state, has access to health care that they need, whether it's abortions, whether it's gender affirming therapy, you name it. Because this is important. It is a fundamental right. It is a healthcare issue. It's also an economic issue and it's a safety issue. So the more kinds of policies like this that we can push forward at all levels, I think is only going to help residents everywhere. Well, one of the issues that I believe has has come up as it pertains to gender affirming care is perhaps requiring that at least an age be observed before this type of care occurs and that some children, essentially, don't necessarily know what they don't know. And I think it's really important about this type of discussion is you have worked extensively with the younger population and they had a a front row seat to your um, campaign. They were actively involved with campaign managers. And so I wonder if you would speak to that to sort of infer that young folks don't necessarily know what their gender is. They may be too young to pursue this and and how how this is really a heart wrenching issue. For, for families, parents, children that are, are really going through this, um, this discussion and perhaps are, are questioning, you know, that they would like to see this type of care. Yeah, I mean, I want to start that conversation by, in 2020, there's a great nonprofit called the Trevor Project, and they did a national survey on LGBTQ youth mental health. And what they found is that 54% of young people who identify as trans or even non-binary have reported serious considerations of suicide, you know, every year. And 29% of them have even made an attempt to end their lives. And in contrast, numerous research studies have found that gender affirming care or just the availability of it leads to improved mental health because this is a mental health issue. It is a crisis that a lot of folks in that community are facing. Now, this does not mean that all youth need to undergo medical transition procedures. And often that's not the case. But gender affirming care is, you know, it's highly individualized and the focus is on the needs of that individual by including, you know, everything from psychoeducation about gender and sexuality appropriate to the age and developmental levels. It includes parental and family support, social interventions, and then obviously the medical interventions that uh, people typically think about when they talk about gender affirming care. So it really is the whole gambit. It's not forcing anyone to do it, but the fact is that there is a higher population of transgender and non-binary youth that are contemplating suicide, that have committed suicide at higher levels than other communities. And providing this level of care and access is only going to help. 
You raised a really important point that I don't think I've heard before, that it's not a question of whether this individual is going to actually transition to another gender. It's that holistic approach to the care and the psychological aspect of things. And I think that um, certainly on the Republican side, um, it's been all about the surgical approach and, and actually you know transitioning to a different gender. But you bring up such an important aspect of this that it really is recognizing the humanity therein and the suffering and acknowledging that there is a pathway that to care across um, social, physical, mental, and of course, physiological well-being. So I think you you did a good job of just humanizing it. It's not a way we often hear it heard in the media, unfortunately. Now, we have discussed in previous podcasts about the need to end the school-to-prison pipeline that seems to exist in this country. And in researching for this podcast, we found that Maryland holds the dubious distinction as having one of the highest rates in the country of prisoners who were sentenced as children with a heavy racial skew, according to a new report. The report is entitled Crimes Against Humanity, the Mass Incarceration of Children in the United States by the nonprofit Human Rights for Kids. And it provides one of the first national assessments of minors charged as adults. The numbers in Maryland represent the remnants of past tough-on-crime sentencing policies that stand in contrast to the more rehabilitation-focused juvenile justice system of today. But in other ways, criminal justice reformers say that era really never ended. The practice of automatically charging minors as adults for certain crimes remains the status quo in Maryland, despite efforts by reformers to pass a bill that would have ended it earlier this year. And Black children continue to make up the vast majority of those who enter the adult system as kids. There are 1,132 prisoners in Maryland who were incarcerated as children, which is 6.09% of the adult prison population, according to this report, double the national average of about 3%. And the report found that there are more than 32,000 prisoners across the country who were convicted when they were under the age of 18. Maryland is one of nine states in the country with more than 1,000 prisoners who were sentenced as children. Of those prisoners, 90% are people of color, 81.3% are Black, 5.3% are Hispanic, the report found. And uh, this is very jaw-dropping, the average sentence length for those prisoners was 25.7 years, and 224 are serving life sentences. Now, many are citing Maryland as a national outlier for sentencing practices for children. I have to ask you what you think about all this. Any comments on a pragmatic solution for this problem? I mean, it is a big problem, right? And that's why I continuously say we need as a society to stop warehousing people and instead focus on reforming them. That should be the whole purpose of our criminal justice system is to reform individuals, not just keep them locked up. And our goal should be to really lower crime rates through that, improve recidivism rates. We want fewer people to commit crimes, fewer people to reoffend, and less of our budget going towards maintaining jails, prisons, and inmate care. Right? That's how we can actually build a sustainable reform. And so that's why I talk about ending extreme sentences for children. But I've also advocated for ending for-profit prison contracts, which are designed to, again, profit off of people staying in jail as opposed to getting them out of jail and out of prison. So we need to use that money instead to invest in local rehab centers 
and making sure also we end the money bail system, right? And a lot of times, you know, lower income individuals are stuck in jails and prisons, not because that they have been found guilty or that they've committed the crime. In fact, often guilt has not even been established yet because they're awaiting trial. Simply, they're staying in those cells because they don't have the money for bail. And so we need to make sure that we have a more objective risk assessments. And again, focus on getting money out of this system and focus on the individuals at the heart of these conversations. That's how we start to improve lives, improve society, make crime levels lower, and really start to build a more sustainable effort. Yeah. And I see a pattern here. I see a holistic approach. And it does appear that that our governmental systems sometimes are just so laser focused on, on one particular issue that um, you're looking at things from a, a wide ranging perspective and understanding that this is a symptom of, of something much greater. I would offer that those children likely are coming from households where there's trauma and where there's all kinds of, of other issues. They didn't necessarily want to find themselves in prison. Who would aspire to that? So I really like how you have, again, humanized the issue. And just this week, CNN won big ratings for its controversial town hall (laughs) with former President Donald Trump, one of our favorite topics here with you, (laughs) not for necessarily the right reasons. And while it was a ratings bonanza for the network, it also outraged many in this country for giving him a platform at all. More than 3 million people watched Wednesday's Town Hall, which represents a 300% increase from a typical weeknight at 8 o'clock for a network that consistently runs behind Fox News and MSNBC. Now, for those who did tune in, we watched as Trump steamrolled moderator Caitlin Collins' efforts to fact check a series of false statements he made in front of a crowd that was vocally supportive of the Republican. During one particularly jarring moment, The New Hampshire-based crowd cheered and laughed as Trump mocked Carol over her accusations of rape in a New York department store in 1997. Now, many critics slammed CNN for allowing sexual assault to be treated like a joke to an applauding audience. Television news is a business after all, and ratings across cable news have steadily declined since Trump's first term in office. But have hit CNN most acutely. And the company also saw its profit dip to under $1 billion for the first time since 2016 last year. I would welcome all your thoughts on this appearance by the former president and CNN's role in it. I mean, listen, it's really disgusting. Obviously, from CNN's perspective, right, they got what they wanted. They needed higher ratings. They got that. But it's really shameful, right? This is a man who was found criminally liable for sexual assault he was found guilty for criminal tax fraud. He's been charged with you know, treasonous efforts. He constantly spews lies and misinformation on everything from COVID to election results that have resulted in uh, serious, serious damage done to our democratic institutions, even costed lives. To give someone like that, I don't care what party he's from, I don't care what positions he's had, to give someone like that a platform, especially a national platform, is not only irresponsible and dangerous, but it's bad for journalism, it's bad for our democracy, and it insults all survivors of sexual assault. And that was very clearly on display. And the fact that we are giving him that kind of space to just continually spew lies and then have a crowd 
mock sexual assault survivors and, and just kind of agree with him and applaud these nasty comments that he's been making. I think it's just, it was really a bad night for, for America. You know, and I don't say that lightly. It, it really was very dangerous. And that's what we need to fight against. We need to hold people accountable. And that's just not happening. Well, I think it's great to get your perspective on this. I, I do have a lot of global listeners, and, and you're right. I mean, this is obviously broadcast around the world, and, and this is um, the former leader of, of our country who is espousing all that you just stated that was really objectionable. So, yeah, it's not a good look. It's not a good look for anybody, but least of all this country, um, and I concur with you on that. Now, we have often chatted about the unfortunate connection between money and politics. Politics, And you actually elucidated me about this. And I was really excited to see that just recently, a bipartisan group of lawmakers introduced a bill that would ban Congress members from trading individual stocks. Democrat Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez and Republican Matt Gates sponsored the bill, which would also limit spouses of congressional members from trading. Now, while these lawmakers are pushing for a strike, stock trading ban on Capitol Hill, a recent analysis, which I will have a link to in the podcast notes, found that several members of Congress or their close relatives sold bank equities just as fears of a financial crisis spread in the wake of Silicon Valley banks collapse. Just to walk through this timeline, on March 10th, the day SVB failed, now, according to the New York Times citing Capital Trades, Representative Dan Goldman, a Democrat from New York, sold shares at First Republic Bank, the large depositor that was rapidly losing both cash and clients. On March 15th, the day before it received an industry bailout of $30 million. Meanwhile, the wife and children of Representative Ro Khanna, a Democrat of California, sold First Republic shares that same day. And furthermore, Representative John Curtis, Republican of Utah, again, across party lines here, sold shares in First Republic from a joint account with his spouse on March 16th, the day the industry bailout occurred. By that time, First Republic shares had already fallen nearly 80% from a February peak. The timing of the sales by those three lawmakers or their relatives meant that the sellers averted an additional price swoon that was still to come. So I want to know what you think about all this and why is this important legislation that's being proposed in your opinion? I think many Americans may not be cognizant of the fact that part of the ethical issues around this are that congressional members have made timely trades in certain stocks that they may have had direct influence over or they have access to sensitive information as a result of the various committees they serve on. Democratic Representative Nancy Pelosi and her husband, Paul Pelosi, have long been scrutinized for their extensive stock trading done by Paul. Now, most of us would be culpable of insider trading if the situations were reversed, and these folks can simply act without concern of any kind. So welcome your input on this. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to the things we've been talking about. Money corrupts the political system. That's very clear from the examples you gave. You know, it's been very clear from what we've been seeing from the Supreme Court justices you know, taking these bribes from party donors, mega donors, and then voting on issues like abortion care and, and others that are having impact on millions of people's lives, not because they are actually looking at the legal precedents or looking at, you know, the impact it's going to have on residents, but just based on, you know, how they can suck up to those, to those donors. So I am very proud of, 
you know, those, those bans on congressional members of owning stocks and including their spouses. You know, according to, there's an organization called the Campaign Legal Center, more than half of all members of Congress own stocks. And in my opinion, and also the, this bipartisan membership, as long as members of Congress and their spouses are allowed to trade individual stocks, the door to corruption remains open. And so there needs to be some accountability and there needs to be a removal of those conflicts of interest or those potential conflicts of interest. I also think we need to go further. There's a, a bill in Congress called the Disclose Act. It has not been uh, fully passed yet, but it would require organizations spending money in elections, including super PACs and political nonprofits, to promptly disclose their donors who have given $10,000 or more during an election cycle. Right now, they do not need to disclose which specific donors and organizations have given that amount of money. The Disclose Act would provide a mandate to do that. And it would also allow the crackdown of shell corporations who hide their identity of donors. And also, it would just essentially make sure that people know where money is coming from in these campaigns, in, this, you know, in these kinds of elections. So again, more transparency and more accountability at the end of the day are needed so that we don't have these conflicts of interest, so that people in political positions of power are actually serving the people, not just their own profits and pockets. Yeah, transparency, as you stated, and I really applaud you for bringing this issue to the forefront. And, and as a result of our conversations, I really try to bring it up in every conversation we have. And unfortunately, it feels like there's more and more examples where, where we're seeing this clearly conflict of interest. And I don't know that we're done yet with seeing um, the bank issues play out. So more to come, unfortunately, on that. But I want to close out this conversation with you by asking you, as someone who ran a groundbreaking campaign with young people who had a seat at the table in decision-making, helped you as campaign managers, when you ran, I want to ask how our government and its legislators can better move forward on issues that unite us across demographics Or is that even possible? I think it can be factual to state that for some American voters across differing age groups, there's simply not much trust left in the U.S. government anymore. And I will offer that if members of Congress are spending their time trading futures and stocks instead of securing the future of fellow Americans, then of course that is problematic. But I think it goes much deeper than that. And voter turnout in the 2020 U.S. general election soared to levels not seen in decades, fueled by the bitter campaign between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, and facilitated by pandemic-related changes to state election rules. More than 158.4 million people voted in that election, and this is according to a Pew Research Center tabulation of official state returns. The 2020 voting surge followed unusually high turnout in the 2018 midterm elections when about 47.5% of the voting age population and 51.8% of voting age citizens went to the polls. But I think what's really astounding is that the U.S. likely will still trail many of its peers in the developed world in voting age population turnout. I find that to be very surprising. In fact, when comparing turnout among the voting age population in the 2020 presidential election against 
recent national elections in 49 other countries, the U.S. ranks 31st between Colombia and Greece. And I know you're impassioned about political engagement by voters of all backgrounds and ages. And so I really welcome your comments about this. Yeah, I mean, I think the best way to make our system and our democracy better is to really engage more people in the process. You know, oftentimes, and we're talking about 2023, right? When I walk into political meetings and events, I'm still usually one of the few people of color and usually one of the youngest people in the room. And what's worse is when young people like me try to step up and challenge the status quo, we're met with quick dismissal from those in power, right? Even when we are eager to roll up our sleeves and tackle issues that will shape our generation's future, young people are often let out, you know, left out of the policy and strategy decision-making process. We are told we're too young or too ambitious and that we should wait our turn as if our desire to contribute and make a difference is nothing more than just you know, impatience. It's very frustrating to think about the time and energy that so many young people pour into political campaigns only to then have policy suggestions ignored or just dismissed. You know, we might talk to campaign staff or send emails or attend fundraisers, but our ideas are really brushed aside. And that's why it's not a surprise that voter turnout rates for young people remain low, right? It's very discouraging when our voices don't seem to matter as though we deserve to be just sidelined and ignored by those who have power. And it really seems like these people in positions of power in both sides and both parties just want younger people to get involved and give them hope and energy, but not to actually open our minds and share what we really want to happen. So until that cycle breaks, we're going to continually see the same problems with the same issues with the same people over and over again. Well, I think conversations like this are really important, and that's why I'm so glad you've agreed to keep coming back and and tackling some of these hot topic issues in politics, because you again reiterate, I I think that this um, younger generation of voters is so important, and I believe that you guys are going to decide the election coming up, if not other important legislative matters, and your voice your voices and your opinions and your thoughts do matter because you're right. All of this directly affects you. And so I'm just so happy that um, and honored that you continue to um, share your voice here. Any closing comments, any thoughts, any words of wisdom <laughs> as, as we <laughs> close out here before we welcome you back again to cover the next round of hot topics, which I'm sure will be um, circulating soon. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I just want to thank you, you know, for you to give a platform for conversations like this. It is super, super important. And I don't think acknowledged enough, right? The the power of the press, which I consider this kind of part of, right? It's, it's giving platforms to interview individuals, to have deep conversations and to hold people accountable. That is really at the core of democracy. It's the core of what makes things work in our government, in our society. And so So I just want to say thank you so much for allowing me to be a part of this conversation and these conversations for pushing the needle to make sure that, you know, people from our community and just people in general who are trying to make a difference have a platform to share what they're doing, to share what they're working on, and then to allow, you know, your audience, your listeners to really be allowed to engage themselves in these kinds of conversations and just open up their thought process because I think that is what it's going to take if we're ever going to make progress moving forward. 
Well, beautiful words, and it is a mutual admiration society, I assure you. We really welcome you here. And more importantly, you, you acknowledge the listeners, you know, attentive listeners in India, Portugal, the United States, and, and you are always one of our most popular guests. And so really welcome your willingness to come here and, and really teach us to, to share what you've learned in this historic and groundbreaking work that you've done in the course of your life and so much more to come, I'm sure of that. So thank you so much, Ashwani Jane. We cannot thank you enough. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you.